Hi there. Welcome to Just to Be Nominated, a podcast about movies distributed by Lee Enterprises. The show was hosted by Bruce Miller, an entertainment reporter from multiple decades who is currently the editor of the Sioux City Journal, Jared McNett, a reporter for the Globe Gazette in Mason City, Iowa, and me, Chris Lay, podcast operations manager for Lee. This week, there was exactly one massive blockbuster, James Gunn's Suicide Squad, which you can see in a theater or on HBO Max. Exactly one animated musical, Vivo, which stars Lin-Manuel Miranda and can be found on Netflix. And there was exactly one documentary, Val, a fascinating retrospective of actor Val Kilmer's brilliant and tumultuous Hollywood career, which was released on Amazon Prime. Keeping with the Kilmer theme, for the staff pick section, we went all in our fave Val roles. And finally, we got into some of the latest movie news. You can find links to all the movies that we talk about in the show notes, along with contact info if you want to sound off in our inbox or Twitter DMs. Let us know what you think in the review section of the show, wherever you get your podcasts. Now, here it is. Our show kicks off after this short pause. Bruce Miller out in Sioux City. I am Chris Lay. We got Jared McNett in Mason City. I'm fearing the approach of Christmas Day. <laughs> fearing the approach of Christmas Day because he saw the Green Knight. Yes, I did. I've seen the Green Knight. I am Groot. <laughs> <laughs> That's who the Green Knight is. The Groot Knight? Mm-hmm. I thought Groot got work. He's now playing the Green Knight. I mean, and it might be Vin Diesel under under all that makeup. Who knows? Okay, so you English majors, tell me what you think. A little backstory real quick. Green Knight, based on an Arthurian legend, yep. uh, one of the Knights of the Round Table. It's his kind of formative story uh, released as a film by A24 last weekend that we talked up exhaustively <laughs> and and all enjoyed to varying degrees i think but jared jared has a background in in the story itself in that i read it once in high school (laughs) this is where we is this where we clue the lute to start playing and and um somebody in the background is talking about the ye old days of you're when we would tell tales around the fire. We'll say I was plenty happy to hear any and all of that kind of music throughout that movie. <laughs> yeah. I kept thinking, when we getting off the dime here, it's time to start moving this thing along. It was such a long slog. I just, my gut instinct, because I think when you see the title Green Knight, you're thinking this is going to be a superhero film. I don't know about the Green Knight, but I bet he's a superhero. And then when you see a preview and you see like horses and stuff, you think, oh, it's Braveheart. We're getting Braveheart. And you get there and it's like, oh no, it's poetry day in English class. No, that's what I thought. It took me about halfway through the film for me to line it up with my own like cultural uh, you know, touch points, touch touchstones to realize it's it's the segment in Monty Python and the Holy Grail where all the knights kind of go off on their own quests. 
and then it's you know brave dear sir robin ran away like that's the the whole you know movie basically and then i couldn't get that out of my head up until uh i mean the last like 10 minutes the whole movie takes a pretty intense turn uh and in my mind really validated everything that you had to sit through to get there but mm -hmm. i also don't think that i would fault anyone who disagreed with me certainly a mileage may vary scenario i think with this one jared come on now you're the defender uh so one of my uh main notes that i had was uh this movie was like if they took uh the john milius uh conan the barbarian movie from the 80s and like dosed, dosed it with like a lot of weapons grade ketamine um it's just like a very like uh trippy and kind of like sedate and uh and times like tranquil version of like a, a big time like sword uh fantasy movie which i really love like the visuals in this are absolute aces whether it's like the colors because both in the poem and in the movie there's a big emphasis on green obviously being the green knight but then also there's some great like yellows and stuff in it too which is always uh, great to look at on a big screen um there's some awesome uh tracking shots in it like there's a really long one when like uh Gawain, who's played by uh dev patel from uh lion and slumdog millionaire he's like leaving uh to go on his quest basically and you just watch him like slowly amble down the road for like a good long while as these kids like run up and try to talk to him and then eventually lose interest and go away and um that that was impressive on like a technical level and then yeah just like uh, I was telling Chris uh, right beforehand that they brought out the A24 All-Stars for this one because Alicia Vikander shows up, and I thought she was um, really good in this. Uh, Ralph Innocent gives voice to uh, the Green Knight, and, of course, he was in The Witch uh, as the dad. And uh, probably my favorite A24 All-Star of all, uh, Barry Kewen from uh, uh, Killing of a Sacred Deer, um, pops up as a very, very... Uh, rascally uh Steve. peasant i guess you could say <laughs> he's a charmless rogue yes that's a good description i like at one point i had a note in my head for some reason that the vibe i almost got from him in that movie was like a bizarro world version of benicio del toro but if he was irish <laughs> i can see it yeah <laughs> for anyone who doesn't know the the plot is Dev Patel as Sir Gawain, who is not quite a knight, mm -hmm. but he's he's in. He's on the outer circle. Yeah, the, the outer rim of the. Uh, a wannabe. Exactly. Of, of the round table. And on Christmas Day, a enormous tree man rides up just directly into the castle and says, whoever wants to fight me, if you win you get my axe for a year and then you have to come and let me hit you however i want be it a killing blow or just a touch on the cheek uh and sir gawain takes the opportunity to show off trying to to win whatever knightly place at the table and chops off the head then has a a dull year of just waiting to see how things work out and then it's the middle long third of third of the movie is him traveling to the green knight and 
going to find out how he gets hit and how it's going to go. And there's lots of other uh, moving pieces that, that play a role. Uh, and there's magic and giants and puppet show. I really liked the puppet show. I thought that was good. Yeah, I was a sucker for that. <laughs> I thought it was fantastic. The payoff is incredible. Not so much. You know, it's one of those films that has great cinematography. It has great costumes and sets. And Dev Patel couldn't be better. Yeah, I he's fantastic. Perfect, is that. But then you say, okay, David Lowry, let's kind of condense some of this stuff. The one thing he does that's interesting is he puts title cards between segments that are kind of funny, that are kind of telling, but it suggests that you're going to get more than what you get. And I really wish that if he's going to go that direction, give me some humor. Let's have it. Don't make me just think, oh, God, we're getting on that horse one more time, and we're going to try and get somewhere with this. You know, look, we're used to having quick and dirty films where there's action, action, action. Every scene changes every five seconds. Um, but in this case, maybe they did need to do a little editing or go a little quicker. And I think people would like it more because it does, doesn't it go over two hours? Yeah, it's two hours and 10 minutes. Yeah, that's a little too long. And you could easily go under the two hour mark and still have your kind of long periods. The other thing I was just shocked at was when he goes and visits his couple and she wants to paint his picture and then he wants to go hunting with them. And then she wants to do a little more than painting a picture. If you're going to go there, go there. That's what I think. I mean, <laughs> it went there. You see the conclusion, but you don't see the, <laughs> the, the destination of that sequence is also the journey in a lot of ways. Shouldn't we be rewarded for hanging around on that long trip? I'm thinking Game of Thrones here, kids. It was totally rewarding to me. Okay. All right. Not for that reason or that scene necessarily, but I've thought about this film pretty steadily since and i liked it a lot i mean it's david lowry is the director known very much for very moody atmospheric films a ghost story of course is probably the best example of that a ghost story but he also did pete's dragon for disney yep. and even going all the way back to another rooney mara uh casey affleck film ain't them body saints what you need to do is be aware what you're getting into. Because mm -hmm. if you take friends to this who are expecting some kind of action film, they are going to be surprised and they're going to turn on you. So just know, let them know that we're going to perhaps an English lesson. It's a very thinky tone poem. It's such a pretentious way to describe it. But it, it really is all about the, the pace, the tone, the just it, it's a very vibey film yep david lowry interestingly enough uh, one of the next big films he's doing is uh for dc he's going to be doing the the black adam film which is in the shazam universe <laughs> um is Margot which is robbie in that probably which is a nice segue i guess into uh suicide squad which i saw and i'm 
kind of fascinated with the DC versus Marvel dynamic because Marvel has obviously been profoundly successful and DC less so. This new Suicide Squad uh, is far and away the most satisfying, I'll say satisfying, film in the DC universe that I've seen. And entirely it's due to James Gunn, who DC pretty much poached from Marvel. James Gunn did all of the Guardians of the Galaxy movies. And this is a, a hard R. Uh, whatever you didn't get in the Green Knight, Bruce, you'll definitely get with Suicide Squad. Oh, all right. Yeah, there's nudity. There is a tremendous amount of gore. They go above and beyond any any F word uh, counts that, that a PG-13 would give them. I think you actually see uh, like a full frontal male nudity before you see any ladies. I mean, it is a, uh, yeah, they pull out all the stops. And it's just kind of a signifier to me that DC, the only way that they can play in the same level as Marvel is to basically steal their talent. And Taika Waititi also, uh, who, who directed Thor Ragnarok, makes a, a weird little cameo. So yeah, DC is just the only way that they can make it happen is to poach. I mean, and good for them, I guess. It's a fine movie. Is the door open for sequels? Doors always open for sequels. And how's Viola Davis? Is she good? Yeah, she's fantastic. Yeah, she's really good. It's huge step above the first Suicide Squad movie by David Ayer. And that's on HBO Max until early September. So anybody who wants to see that can definitely see it if they don't want to go to the theater, which it sounds like Delta variants are going to be affecting people's decisions on that. Bruce, have you seen Vivo? Yes, yes. Uh, animated um, Lin-Manuel Miranda musical about a monkey living in Cuba whose owner has written a song for a woman that he loved and knew back when. She's now in Miami and she's retiring and he wants to get the song to her. And so the monkey decides that he's gonna do it and he goes with a little girl and they go on this big journey to try and get to Miami to reach her in time before her big show. And it's very, very colorful. Um, I mean, they have pulled, the visuals alone are popping because you get that kind of neon vibe from Miami and you get this very kind of muted kind of, I don't know, um, primary colors from Cuba. And then you get this goopy little monkey, Lin-Manuel Miranda does the voice of it, who's kind of bouncing all around. And then at the end, Gloria Estefan, who plays the, the older woman who's doing her final concert, is a nice button to the whole thing. And you hear the song. And, you know, I look at these and I think, Cal, is Lynn that excited to get an Oscar nomination that he's going to throw everything out there? Because he did all the music for this. He's got another one co coming out in the fall for Disney. He has In the Heights, where he wrote a, a new song for that. So there's, you know, he could be the whole category for best song next year if he really wanted to be, because there's enough in it. It's cute. It's good for kids. I don't know if you as an adult would really be hot for it, but it is on Netflix. And that starts, I think. I think it's out now. Look at Netflix. It's on Netflix. It's Vivo. For all the Lin-Manuel heads. Yeah, and he has a lot of Cuban music in there, and he uses real Cuban musicians so that you get that kind of authentic vibe from all of it. 
But again, you listen to his stuff and you see a little Hamilton and everything. It's like he's borrowing from himself a lot of times. But yeah, that's new. That's new this week. So those are the, the new releases that are worth tracking down. For our staff picks, we're going to tee off with a, another new release, which is a documentary about Val Kilmer that is on Amazon Prime called Val, which is a career overview, leans very heavily on his personal exhaustive archive of filmed clips, you know, going all the way back to his childhood and yeah, there is one level of it is I mean, Val Kilmer as a self-archivist is <laughs> very talented. I mean, he, he's saved everything and this is the perfect, it's, it, it's a really great way to showcase this. Um, I've seen it, Bruce, you saw it. What were your, uh, what were your thoughts? I was so sad after seeing it. I saw this kind of vibrant guy in the beginning and you can see him as a kid. They, he has films from his kid, his childhood, when he's in like little plays and things. And you see he has this very good spark. There's this spark that just pops, you know, and you know, this kid is going to be something. And then you see him through the college years and he points out that he was the youngest student ever at the time to be admitted to Juilliard. And you know that he has something, you know, there's something there. But then I think you get to the point around Top Gun where he buys his own publicity, where he is this kind of rebel. You know, he is this, he could easily fall into the Johnny Depp, Marlon Brando fold, where they're kind of marching to their own drummer. And then you see, and I love, the, my favorite part was when he has a fight with John Frankenheimer. And this was when he got labeled as difficult. And you see from his standpoint that no, he's not being difficult, he's being protective because they had already switched out directors. They brought in John Frankenheimer and John Frankenheimer wasn't paying any attention to what they were doing. And he's starting to film this stuff and he says, turn the camera off, this is the director. And he said, no, uh, until you're, you know, you're with me here, I'm gonna leave the camera on. When you're ready, then I'm ready. No, turn it off. And they have this kind of fight and all he's trying to do is protect himself. And I think he would have footage there that would prove, you know what? We do have a problem with the director, but that got out that he was this troublemaker. And then everything he did was kind of like, oh boy, it's hard working with him. And I don't, I don't think that is the case. I don't think he was a problem. He was very dedicated. When you see him trying to get into Full Metal Jacket and he's doing like auditions, he did like four different characterizations of how he might play it. And I thought, oh, wow, that's, that's really cool that you would go to that extreme. And, you know, then he talks about playing Jim Morrison in The Doors and how he wore the same pair of pants for a whole year and his wife was going to kill him because, you know, come on, let's not always be Jim Morrison. I don't want him around the house. But there's a lot of fascinating stuff there. But the stuff that killed me was when it is now. He had throat cancer and he has to use, you know, he has a, uh, I don't know what you call it, but it's a, like a tracheotomy where he has to hold his, his throat to be able to speak. And then you see him, which is, I think, even sadder, going to these Comic-Con-like places where he's signing autographs. And he has to ask to, I need to lie down for a little bit. And it's like, oh my God, it's come to this. This is this guy who is this great actor. And now he's 
reduced to signing autographs, I'm sure to help pay the bills. Those autograph conventions are a whole other conversation of where is their place in in the celebrity narrative arc for so many people. Right. The first time I ever went to one, this was way before they were part of a comic con or you had anything. It was like, it was called the Hollywood celebrity show or whatever. It was at like a holiday inn and they were in the ballroom for lack of a better term. And you look and you see like your whole childhood is sitting there at tables. It's like every sitcom you've ever seen, every MTV thing you might have watched, they're all sitting at tables and they've got these little kind of pouches of money and they're making change with you. So they'll say it's $20 and then you might give them like 50 or something and they've got to dig in this little pouch to give you the change before they sign. I, I It was like so, I thought I... Uh, no, my stars should not be like this. They should not have to be reduced to this. Now, I was told they are great money makers, and you shouldn't look down on it or anything. And I think the feds came in and said, we got to tax this stuff because this is just passing money and nobody is, you know, we're not getting our pay, take of the, of, the, of the thing. But it was, it was sad. And I saw all these ones that I saw in movies and TV shows, and I thought, no, I can't do this. And I, I felt kind of terrible even going up to them and talking to them. There was Barney Fife. Come on, Barney Fife. And Barney Fife can barely see to write his name. The incredible Mr. Limpet himself. Yeah. And it's they're expensive. So if you go to these things and you want to buy one, bring money. Because it it used to be like five and ten dollars they'd charge you. Now it's 70 and above. Yeah. I remember when I was in high school, there was a Heroes Aren't Hard to Find comic convention, which a local comic shop in Charlotte uh, would sponsor every year. And it was a great convention, but I remember seeing that David Prowse was going to be there signing autographs. David Prowse was the, the physical Darth Vader. Uh, he was the one in the suit. And, and I brought the, the cape from my Darth Vader action figure and a like a silver paint pen, you know, to have him sign it. Cause I was a, you know, huge star Wars fan. This is pre prequels, <laughs> you know? So it was the, the brand was still pretty sterling at that point. And, you know, I remember, you know, seeing that it was, you know, like 20 bucks for a signed headshot or like, you know, 40 or more for, you know, him to sign whatever else. And I'm just like, I can't, you know, I brought like, you know, 50 bucks for me to buy a bunch of comics and, you know, bootleg DVDs or whatever they were hawking there at the time. And I'm just like, I, I can't do this. And it was a, it was a real bummer, but it seems like on the one hand, you do get a certain percentage of fans that tell you as, as an artist, you know, that you, that you gave them meaning in some way that something you did affected them. But for every single one of those, you get you know, five unscrupulous guys that just roll up with, you know, uh, a tote bag full of stuff for you to sign that they're just going to flip on eBay. <laughs> it's hard to, like I said, just where, where does that fit in the, the larger Hollywood infrastructure? I went to those all the time as a, uh, like a teenager, but for like sports stuff. And like, there were definitely some of them I could tell as like a teenager, 
were doing it because maybe they were older and weren't necessarily the best off financially. But then some of them, like I know for a fact, they were like doing okay. Like I got a couple autographs from like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar one time. And I mean, as far as I know, he's always been pretty financially secure and everything. And so I think, you know, some of them, if it is a case where they just like to do it because they like to, to meet fans and stuff like that, I think those are cool and less sad than some of the other ones, like a, I don't know, like a Pete Rose type or whatever, who's just doing it because he just wants to keep hoovering up money. <laughs> like I said, that's another, it's a, such a deeper, weirder conversation. Jared, did you watch it? Did you see Val yet? No, I need to. I'm going to see it. Over, I'm going to watch it over the weekend. Uh, the green night was enough for, for one night last night. <laughs> For me, watching it, I watched it late last night, mm -hmm. and I, it was a very difficult film to sleep on because I felt so sorry for what had happened and not necessarily of his own making. Right. Now, his kids are wonderful kids. The son, Jack, does the narration for him because he can't speak to do all this, and he admits it. He said, you can't understand me. They subtitle a lot of the things that he does. But Jack reads and he sounds a lot like his dad. And so you do feel like he's telling the story. And is it Mercedes? Is that his daughter? Um, she seems very fun and playful. There's a scene where you see uh, his ex-wife, Joanne Wally. She's there with him. So it seems like there's an okay relationship. And everything seems fine. He has, you know, a home. I, I don't worry that he's out asking for money on the streets or anything like that but it's just the idea the concept that you would be you know doing this right and as far as the health stuff goes i mean i don't know where he's at as far as remission or anything along those lines but there's a, a point you know later in the movie where he basically says you know people think that this is much more uncomfortable for me than it is like it's it's just it's more uncomfortable for him to just have trouble communicating in general and to be understood. And uh, I mean, he seems pretty fine with where he's at. I mean, it's, it is a lot of things that, that, that were taken out of his hands. Like, like you said, Bruce, with Island of Dr. Moreau being the real turning point, uh, which if anybody wants to track it down, there's a really good documentary called Lost Soul. Uh, the doomed journey of Richard Stanley's Island of Dr. Moreau. Richard Stanley was the original director of Island of Dr. Moreau, taken off multiple weeks into production and replaced by John Frankenheimer. Who uh, didn't work again until the Colorado space just, what, two years ago? Yeah, Richard Stanley is a an absolute character, uh, just a complete weirdo. Mad man. <laughs> yep. After getting fired from the film, he notoriously just kind of moved to a different part of the island and hung out and actually ended up on set multiple times as an extra. Like, I mean, it's just it, it's a bizarre, bizarre story. Yep. So talking about Val Kilmer, I thought it was a fantastic documentary. It was, it was more affirming for me, but I but I totally picked up on, on the sadness. It was more of an existential kind of thing uh, as as a production. I thought it was great. That's going to lead us to staff picks, like I was saying, of our personal favorite Val Kilmer performances. Jared, why don't you kick us off? Just a good old-fashioned uh, action movie from the 2000s that uh, Val Kilmer is in. Um, he's not the lead. Uh, it's uh, Deja Vu from 2006, which uh, 
the uh, great Tony Scott directed. Of course, Denzel uh, is in that uh, and he plays like an ATF agent who travels back in time to stop a terrorist attack uh, perpetrated by Jim Caviezel, who, of course, played Jesus. Um, and then Val Kilmer is uh, also in it. It's just like the, you know, kind of uh, incredulous uh, FBI agent, I guess you would say, who kind of stymies uh, a lot of uh, what Denzel is uh trying to do. And uh, he does a good job of being the uh, bureaucrat who keeps mucking things up a little bit for Denzel and getting in his way. So it's uh, not quite as good as um, Man on Fire, which of course Denzel also did with Tony Scott, but I think it's almost there. So yeah, just a good uh, mid-2000s action movie for you with Val Kilmer, uh, Jim Caviezel, and uh, Denzel Washington. I remember interviewing him back in the early days when he was in Top Secret. That was his first film. I remember him being, if you will, he was kind of the Brad Pitt of his day where he was really good looking and had a little, had a spark of something, but also was kind of full of himself. That's what I remember most of all. I mean, like, you know, yeah, I'm cool. Yeah, I know that. And that's kind of the vibe I remember from him. And then he got to be to the point where he was not available. He did not do interviews and stuff. But I, re- I thought he was very friendly. I thought he was very um, um, honest with answering questions and things like that. So I thought he was a, a great kind of up and comer. You just never knew. Charlie Sheen was another one like that around that time where you think this could go somewhere. Let's see what happens. And, you know, what are the cards that they're dealt? What happens in Hollywood where all this changes? But for me, it's got to be the doors. I, I truly, I was shocked. I looked up last night and I thought, oh, who beat him for best actor? He wasn't nominated for best actor. The only award nominations that he's gotten? MTV. MTV, yeah. And it sucks <laughs> so much. That's criminal. That really is because if you look at that um, uh, Bohemian Rhapsody that Rami Malek did and won an Oscar for, that doesn't come close to what he did as Jim Morrison. Not at all. And the idea that he committed so in uh, so fully to this, and it shows you you think he is Jim Morrison. He looks like Jim Morrison. He acts like Jim Morrison. And the idea that they ignored that, it had to be there was just some bad blood out there and they just didn't want him because there's no way that couldn't have been one of the top five performances of that year. And it's not even like uh, they had a vendetta against like Oliver Stone stuff because JFK came out the same year and that raked in like Oscar nominations for Oliver Stone. So it seems like it was specifically just about Val Kilmer and I guess not being a fan of his work. And that's wrong. That's, you know, they talk about cancel culture and all this stuff, but what about this thing where they start kind of blackballing people because they don't like them speaking up? You know, mm-hmm. speak up. That will make a better picture, maybe. Let's see. But my pick was the doors. When I was looking through the real life people that he has portrayed, I mean, you've got quite a few. Yeah. And I don't know if I'll include Batman as, as a real life person. Uh, also, I mean, that's in the film, it kind of he goes to pains to explain how much he hated being Batman. Um, but yeah, Doc Holliday, Tombstone, um, you know, he was Moses in the Prince of Egypt. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Played, he did a stage show of Mark Twain. Yep. Which I've looked for 
streaming. And I don't think it's out there, at least not right now that I can find. So I'm, I definitely want to see that, uh, which he took to Broadway, a one-man show about Mark Twain. It almost got to Broadway. It didn't get there. Oh, it got to New York, though, I think. But yeah. It was like off-Broadway, I suppose. And he played Elvis in True Romance, <laughs> in like a bit part where he's just kind of hidden. The movie that I'm going to pick is one of my absolute favorite lesser-seen films, uh, and that is Kiss Kiss, Bang Bang, I don't know how to, I mean, it's a two-hander. It's got Robert Downey Jr. in the lead, Val Kilmer uh, playing a character named Gay Perry, who is gay. Uh, and the way that he delivers the rat-a-tat dialogue from Shane Black, who wrote and directed it, is, I don't know, the way that he says ficus, I don't know, is just... <laughs> so yeah, it's incredible script. He's perfectly cast in that is it a cult classic at this point or is it just underseen? Like, I don't, I don't even know. I think maybe more underseen as much as anything. For some reason in my head, uh, I kind of just perpetually now lump that movie in with uh, Matchstick Men. And I don't know why, because they're totally different directors and everything, but they're both just really solid, like not super ambitious movies, but just really well done with, you know, some great like longtime uh, actors in both of them. I know that I've recommended it in the past. I don't know. This maybe makes like the third or fourth time that I've thrown this out there since we started doing this. And it is, I'm correct every time to recommend it. <laughs> so kiss, kiss, bang, bang. See it if you haven't. He's got so many good movies that are worth, you know, checking out. You know, it's funny. I wanted to see Batman. Is it Batman Returns? Is that the one he was in? Batman Forever. I wanted to see that again because you can see where he could easily have been the Joker or the Riddler. <laughs> you know, he has that kind of over-the-top quality, very Jim Carrey-like when you see them kind of in, in play. Do you think he's having to tone it down because he could really be just as wild as he is? It's kind of weird to look at his, like, filmography and, like, see how much more he was working like in the 2000s versus when he was coming up or when he was even kind of at his apex because he was in a lot of movies from 2000 on. Yeah, well, and he's in the new Top Gun film. Now, I don't know how they do that or what they're doing or if it's old footage that they just use. I don't know. But does he show up at some point? That'd be fascinating to see how it plays out. An interesting little nugget. There is a film... It's a, like an anthology film called The Fourth Dimension, where three directors each contributed short films. Uh, Harmony Corinne is the most notable director, I think, of the bunch. And his segment stars Val Kilmer, and it's out there. Just Google Fourth Dimension Harmony Corinne, and you'll you know find the, the Val Kilmer chunk of that. And it is really great. The Val documentary that we're recommending here was co-directed by one of Harmony Corinne's editors at the time on Harmony Corinne's probably most notorious film, Trash Humpers. <laughs> so I don't know. Trash Humpers, which I actually saw in a theater with a few other broken souls. <laughs> Just an interesting little, little tidbit for any of the, the weirdos out there who care. 
now we can talk about news. Let's go to Jared on the news desk. So I will say, uh, macho, macho, macho man, I want to be a macho man. And I'm sorry that I'm picking another trailer thing, but I guess there was more than just a trailer. There's more info, too, about the movie. Is uh, the previews and stuff for uh, Cry Macho, which is a new movie from um, Clint Eastwood based off of a book from the 70s by uh, Richard Nash. And basically the plot of it is, um, which... Some of these trailers people pointed out, especially for like Warner Brothers movies, give away too much plot in the trailer. And this is kind of happens in the Cry Macho trailer, too. So if you don't want to watch it, all you really need to know is that basically Clint Eastwood plays like a washed up rodeo guy who gets tasked with uh, bringing um, this guy's son back from Mexico to the U.S. And the guy that plays the dude that gives him the task is a country legend, uh, Dwight Yoakam, who's always great in any movie he pops up in, I think. Um, and it, I don't know, it just looks really good. Um, I really liked um, Richard Jewell. I thought the mule was solid. Uh, some of the other ones from the 2010s, I was not even close to a fan of at all. But um, it's really cool to see Clint Eastwood still working at 91. And um, a couple of people pointed out that um, the way some of this is shot almost looks like he's been uh, paying attention to stuff that uh, Chloe Zhao has been doing with the last couple of years of uh, her career. So it's cool to see Clint Eastwood still doing movies and it's cool to actually see him doing uh, probably at least one more uh, Western type movie before he's uh, over and done with. They're going to have to pry the, the camera from his cold dead hand. Yep. I know that that's crossing the streams as far as our, you know, legendary, you know, Hollywood Republican actors. But how does he do it? Quickly. He does it quickly. Exactly. <laughs> yep. Got it. Next one. Bruce, what do you got news wise? Well, I don't have any news flash. I do have something that I want you to watch. Next week on Hulu, there's a new series called Reservation Dogs. It is so fun. It's so great. It's about these four kids who live on a reservation who decide they're going to be forming a gang so they can make some money to get off the reservation and go to California because they're convinced that their friend who died the year before was killed by being just bored living on the res. And it is such a new, fresh take on the kinds of stories we can get um, a lot of indigenous people were involved with the creation of this. And Taika Waititi is one of the producers of the show. It captures that world so perfectly. I grew up on a reservation. And so I, I had a, a, maybe a sharper eye looking at it, thinking, oh, they're going to they're gonna just go to bingo or casinos or things like that to kind of get their, their vibe. They go way beyond. And it is even gestures, things that I remember that were unique to us. Um, are in this and the kids are just wonderful. There are, and I think they're relatively new actors, if not even this is their first thing, playing these kids and they are perfect, perfect. It's great and you should see it. It starts next week. I think it's a limited 10 week run and it, it'll show you where we need to be headed. You know, I don't start putting up barriers and saying, oh God, are we gonna get all these kinds? These are stories we haven't heard, we haven't seen, and they have a lot to tell you and humor in a different way. The timing is unbelievable. So reservation dogs, and they do kind of reference reservoir dogs in a, just a slight, slight way. So don't think it's a, a ripoff of anything that you haven't seen. But 
that's my, if you will, a recommendation, not necessarily a newsflash. Fantastic. And Chris, what's your hot news? The news that I've got uh, is kind of something between a recommendation and in a news story. Um, I suppose it, uh, Amanda Knox was on an episode of the podcast Today Explained, uh, which is a product of Vox.com. Uh, and the title of the, the podcast episode is Who Owns Amanda Knox? And this ties into Stillwater, which I know, Bruce, you've, you've championed for the past few weeks. And I'm, I'm certainly intrigued to see it myself. But the movie is based loosely on Amanda Knox's experience as a accused murderer uh, and all of the, I mean, ordeal, I guess, the, the you know, traumatizing ordeal that she went through in Italy you know, 15, however many years ago. And, you know, she wasn't consulted for this film, her, her life rights. I mean, like legally it is perfectly fine for them to make this film, but ethically it raises a, a whole lot of questions and she gets into that pretty intensely. And the conversation that she has is, it doesn't seem like she has a, like an ax to grind so much as, maybe like a pocket knife to grind. I mean, it's, she's, you know, she's coming at it from a, a position of, I want to talk about this, not necessarily take anybody down or, you know, hold anybody hostage or anything along those lines. But it is a, uh, yeah, it was just a great conversation that I think definitely spreads out uh, so far as implications of a lot of the, the true crime adaptations that we have seen and will uh, undoubtedly continue to see for the next, I mean, for the rest of our lives for, you know, until the, the heat death of the universe, basically. You know, it, I, I can sympathize with her, but they don't call her out. They're not using, they don't reference her at all. I get what she's trying to do with this, but if you watch law and order every week, that's all that is, is ripped from the headlines and they change the names and nobody's saying to Dick Wolf, stop this. It's my story. So I think, you know, it is so different from what her story was in many respects. Um, it's not about a dad, you know, her life wasn't dad coming to her rescue and not being able to fit in in the community. Dad, I, as I remember, was there, wasn't he, in those situations? And yeah, and so I, I get it. It's a germ of what she went through, but they go in another direction. So she may have been an inspiration for it, but I don't think she has any right to tell them they can't make a movie like this. But, and I mean, the, the interview definitely, you know, gets into this and she clarifies a lot. Um, but uh, Tom McCarthy, the, the director and co-writer has directly referenced her by name in, in a lot of the promotional aspects of it. So and then, uh, and, she has a case. Yeah. And, 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 and she, you know, says like, he wants to have his cake and eat it too, where it's, you know, you want to use her name to reference things, but also with the film itself. Um, and I don't think this is necessarily a spoiler for it, but the, uh, the, the film implicates her character or the character loosely based on her. It implicates her in the crime much more than she was in real life which obviously in real life, she had no implication. Um, 
she was not involved in that at all. And so it's it's a further muddying of the waters. And she also mentions, you know, a Lifetime movie that did similar things. Uh, and I don't, it's it's just a she she doesn't want to take anybody down a notch. It's just this is something from an ethical standpoint where it is in a gray area that is very ripe for dissecting and coming to better conclusions about, or at least just talking about more openly. So yeah, I, I was fascinated by it. Yeah. Um, and she probably yeah. wanted to put this, this experience behind her and something like this drags it all back. And then people start asking her questions and I get what she's going at. We have that coming up with a Monica Lewinsky miniseries. Oh um, and, you know, she, for years, she was saying, I don't want to have anything, you know, leave me alone. And now she's a producer on this. So, okay, she became a part of the storytelling, but that was her story. This is not her, this is not Amanda Knox's story, but it's based on a very similar kind of outlook. Well, I mean, part of what she, you know, points out is that people are just not consulting her about any of this ahead of the time. And one of the examples that she cites, which, you know, has run its full course by the time that, uh, you know, this movie came out, but Malcolm Gladwell, one of his recent books had a whole chapter about her and he requested, you know, using audio from her audio book after the fact. And, you know, she said, I want to read the chapter that, that you're going to include this on in the audiobook version of yours. Uh, and he sent it along and she's like, well, I've got issues with a lot of this and it just would have been you know, convenient, like much more convenient from a, from a factual standpoint for you to have brought me and you can write whatever you want, but, you know, just have me involved in, in the process in some way. And it's, it's one thing for someone to make a, a conscious decision to exclude her from the narrative. And it's another thing where it just feels like it's a, an oversight. It's just laziness on the part of the, the filmmaker or the producer or the writer, um, you know, covering a topic like this. And, you know, I'm sure that it's super frustrating for her to be associated, you know, still associated with this murder that she didn't commit that somebody else clearly in real life was convicted of while she was still on trial <laughs> pretty much. So yeah, it, it was just a, a fascinating conversation that definitely it doesn't end up coming off as a, you know, her trying to, you know, cancel anybody or, you know, hurt the movie. It's much, it seems sincerely to come from a place of there needs to be more dialogue around things like this. Uh, I'm shocked at all that uh, Malcolm Gladwell would take any shortcuts uh, with anything. <laughs> Man, God, yeah. You know, the, it's like a beginning reporter. You say, make a phone call to the person that you're talking about. Yep. Don't you do that? And sometimes they're afraid that they're going to get their phone slammed in their in their ear. And yep. you can't do that anymore, can you, without phones? But I don't know how you slam on a cell phone. But but they just they're afraid of rejection. So they don't make the call in the first place. And you should make the call. You can always, you know that the worst can happen is they say no. Yep. And then you have the the addendum or the the caveat of XYZ person was, 
you know, we, we reached out, but they either declined to comment or refuted certain aspects of the story or a representative declined to comment. I mean, there's, or their lawyers, I mean, there's, you have that color to it where you can say, at least we, we tried to do our, I mean, it's due diligence. It is the, the basics of journalism. And yeah, like you said, Jared, I know Malcolm Gladwell, Malcolm Gladwell has a <laughs> pretty checkered past about a lot of that stuff. Uh, so yep. anyway, yeah. But again, it's, it's just the interview painted a, a really interesting picture of the perspective of someone in a true crime story, viewing the way that their story is being told on the outside. And specifically with her, it's interesting just because this is part of a much larger thing where her specific story has been retold by so many people who have, however consciously or, you know, through indifference or laziness or whatever, just have not contacted her. And even you know, just to have her as a consultant. I mean, she found out about it the same way that everybody else did. I mean, somebody called her the day the trailer came out saying like, hey, must be cool to, <laughs> you know, have this movie made about you or whatever. And she's just like, I don't, what, who, huh? It's not about money. It's not about, you know, anything along those lines. It's just a, there's a certain consideration for someone who has, you know, been victimized. And it, a lot of times, the people who, who remain from these stories were, were victimized in real life. And now there is a, a much more subtle kind of victimization of them being removed from their, from their stories. And yeah. And, and it's just a, with true crime being the, the lingua franca of podcasts and um, you know, so many film adaptations and, everything else. And I, I totally get the, the, from the headlines aspects that, you know, uh, you know, law and order deals with, there's just something that's a little bit more pungent about something like this. It just, it, it, this fails to pass the smell test in so many ways. And the, I thought that Amanda Knox as an interview subject was just very great. Yeah, she she elucidates her points and her side of the story in a way that is really solid. So I would definitely I say give a listen. There's still an Amanda Knox movie to be made. Oh, of course. And she could be a participant of that. I think what Stillwater kind of glosses over is that European um, system of how they have justice. And that would be interesting to see where... In Stillwater, for example, the, the, the attorney says, just don't know, don't mess with this. Don't try to open it up again. What is that? And what is the system where they just give up on it? And I think that was one of her cases, her, the aspects of her cases, they just wanted to, we want a, a, somebody who's guilty and we're going to just take anybody and we're done with it and don't try and bring it back up again. And I think that would be a fascinating story is to see how different their justice system is from what we're used to. Yeah. And I mean, the to make a movie about Amanda Knox, it's not even going I mean, it's, it's going to concern the murder, but in this really indirect way, because I mean, her experience, it, it's much more it would have to be presented in, in this, you know, Kafka esque. Uh, I feel like a, a ding dong even saying that, but it's, <laughs> you know, I mean, but it really is a it's it's the trial. It's the castle. It's, you know, 
all of this insane foreign bureaucracy controlling you. Uh, and yeah, I mean, she, she had no agency in that scenario and she just had her agency taken from her even further, you know, anyway. That's a Vox uh, podcast interview. So. It's called Today Explained. They have a daily podcast. Pretty short. So, Well, next week we'll get another chance to check the veracity with respect. The Aretha Franklin film. R-E-S-P-E-C-T. Yeah. And we'll see. How, you know, Genius did that on, um, was a National Geographic channel. And a different, Cynthia Revo played the part there. And here Jennifer Hudson gets the part. And she was handpicked by Aretha to play her. So we'll see how, how good this is and how close it might be to reality. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, Fall Guy starts next week too. And I'm wondering if that's gonna be just a piece of trash. Free Guy. Free Guy, sorry, Fall Guy. That was a, a necessary slip. Um, <laughs> but I wonder if it's gonna be anything or if it's just, ugh, you know? I like Ryan Reynolds. I, have, I, I genuinely like Ryan Reynolds and the magnetism of, of his personality can tend to buoy even the most, you know, banal stuff. So we'll see. And uh, see how many chances he gets. Th that's one that has been, I mean, I remember seeing posters for that in the theaters for months leading up to the the like quarantine before theaters shutting down so this has been in the can for a very long time <laughs> and we'll see how that how that goes i'm thinking it's maybe just going to get dumped but we'll see yeah free guy r-e-s-p-e-c-t also it looks like don't breathe too uh oh jared get ready i'm not looking forward to that I don't, but maybe i'll be surprised I actually really enjoyed the the first Don't Breathe. That's part of why I'm not looking forward to this one. <laughs> Squeezing the last drops out of the, the teat of the cash cow. Is that the... <laughs> well, uh, we can uh, blindly cross that bridge when we get to it. Very good. Jared, you got to hit the road. You want to um, take us out real quick? Look, on, uh, you know, any day of the year, whether it's, you know, holiday, like uh, Christmas or just a regular day, if uh, a green knight comes and presents you with some impossible um, task, you, you don't need that. You don't need that in your life. It's too much stress. It's too much pressure. You don't know what this guy's up to. There's going to be some kind of trickery involved, especially if it's some sort of mythical being. Uh, so instead of accepting any uh, quests or tasks that uh, seem of monumental importance, instead... Uh, make it a little easier on yourself and uh, go out to your local uh, Cineplex or indie uh, theater and uh, see something good. See something good. That was masterful. Well, that is the end of the episode. Next week, we've got the Aretha Franklin biopic, R-E-S-P-E-C-T, Ryan Reynolds in Free Guy, and a horror thriller sequel, Don't Breathe 2. Check the show notes for links to where you can stream all the movies that we talked about, discover older episodes, and find ways to contact Bruce, Jared, and myself as well if you want. The show is produced by myself, Bruce, and Jared, and I'm the one who records and edits it. We hope you enjoyed the show and are taking care of yourself out there. As always, thank you so much for listening. <laughs>